All right, it's uh, Tuesday night with a very. <laughs> Our intro Our music does not want to cooperate. Uh, one day we'll get this right. Yeah, oh when it does gosh. autoplay, it doesn't actually autoplay. And when you click the button, there's a nice delay. All right, so uh, now we got that out of the way. So it's a uh, Tuesday night with a very special episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, this is the show that mixes comics and politics. Uh, perfect for the folks who uh, wonder if a uh, certain candidate is going to hop in on the Democratic side and make things a little bit more interesting. Uh, tonight we have a special guest, a first-time um, uh, well, guest of the show. Uh, but before I introduce her, I want to introduce my co-host, Alana. How things on your end and what's happening? Well, uh, just got the new preview of Phonogram, the Immaterial Girl uh, second issue in my hands, which means that the review or an essay that I've been working on about the series, um, especially focusing on the new arc, is going to be coming up this week. Uh, if anybody's been wondering if they should check out the series, the answer is yes. Uh, my primary intended audience for this piece, though, are people who are already beginning to read it, so hopefully we can have a discussion around it. I, I'm going to be asking the uh, age the, the ages-old question of, am I a retromancer just because I mostly listen to old music? And what does that have to do with being able to like the series? Um, so, uh, yeah, I hopefully it'll be a good way to get new folks involved in it as well. But I think it'll be out on Thursday at graphicpolicy.com. You guys know we have a website, right? Yes. Um well, of course, we'll be plugging that throughout the show. But uh, we've got a first-time guest uh, who's joining us, Alex DeCampi, who's a fantastic comic creator. Um, she's worked with some of the biggest publishers out there, Dark Horse, Archie, Image. Um, and she's had some awesome series, or has awesome series that have been out. Uh, Grindhouse, Doors Open at Midnight, um, the whole Grindhouse series, Drive In, Bleed Out. Uh, she also did Archie versus Predator, Yes it is as awesome as it sounds. Uh, of course, her own created creator owned series smoke and ashes, which we'll talk to her, ask her about. I have got questions about that one and uh, no mercy, <laughs> which is out from image comics that sees its trade hitting stores rather soon. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show and thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you. I'm, d- I'm delighted to be here at last. Um, I was uh, at the, the show and I, uh, for, for our gentle readers out there um, kept missing. Cause I, I, we go out to a, island off the coast of Maine every summer, um, which has no phone or internet, well, very, very spotty cell service and no internet. Um, and we kept ske- scheduling graphic policy interviews for Mondays when theoretically I'd be back, and then there would be fog or a storm or something, and I would get stuck out there um, because small planes, um, they don't like fog and they don't really like storms. And I don't like flying in when when the plane might fall out of the sky. Um <laughs> So, so I'm thrilled that the, that that um, Brett and Elena have persevered, and we finally we finally gotten the show together. Um, and I thank you for your patience. <laughs> that was oh, great. It's yeah, great to have you there. I I should just say real quick, I I we, we got a hold of Alex because I was at Special Edition, um, which is a new like comics focused Comic Con from New York Comic Con, and she was on a panel about Image Comics and everything she said. I was like flailing in the audience with excitement about how right she was. So I was really glad we were able to get this together for that reason. I ran after her saying, I'm going to go read all your comics now and we have to have you on the show. Yay. 
Yeah, you know, I, I really like special edition. It was it was well done. I, I mean, obviously, if as long as they they move the um, uh, panel rooms, the, the discussion rooms, kind of opposite each other rather than right next to each other, so we don't have that like Jamaican sound clash of like two comics discussions going on at the same time with only a thin curtain separating them. It got kind of surreal occasionally, but but luckily yes. I am loud, <laughs> so we won. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I say the uh, the first question we usually ask our guests is um, how you got into the comic industry. Um, you know, how did you go from well, growing up to making comics? Um, gosh. Um, uh, usually, I just make something up um, when I answer this question because. <laughs> something we always get asked and it's it's a dull one um so you know much like david bowie and the man who fell to earth i was an alien who landed here rather roughly one day about a mm, hundred years ago and <laughs> after having realized that the best way to communicate with the natives on this planet was pictures um I've stayed in touch with the uh, the zeitgeist as time has gone on, and and and, and reincarnated myself several times as a, as a writer um, of of of, of picture based narration um, and fiction over the years. And actually, cool. in real life, I look like an octopus. We have <laughs> very low gravity I, on my I planet. Factually, prove that to be not true. Although. I, well, my real—you're just seeing—you're just seeing my my sort of projected image, not the actual alien. So it's kind of like at the end of that one particular arc in Grindhouse, and I'm not going to say which one in case people haven't read it yet. And I'm just in like a capsule still, being monitored by evil people. Yes. So, because I really liked your outfit, you know. <laughs> well, um, but you've been writing comics. For over a decade now, it looks like, right? Well, here and there. I mean, I, I, various breaks happened in the middle. Um, family medical emergencies. I had a child, um, uh, misplaced husband. Um, directed a whole bunch of music videos and commercials. So, but yes, um, I mean, comics are comics are quite hard to to put out, um, and they take a long time, and uh, they don't pay very much, especially when. Um, you know, you're you're sort of an indie person, um, that tall comics dollar, um, and so it's 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 taken. It, you know, it's it. I write slowly, and I write the things I want to write. So yes, I've been writing for ten years, but don't really have that many books to show for it. Huh. I, it's interesting because I guess it's because I got I got caught up on your stuff like all in this big burst over the past couple of months. But I, I when I when I looked at the range of stuff that you've worked on, you know, there's horror comics and I mean there's definitely a lot of suspense in the all, all of the work that you've done. But it really seems like a pretty big portfolio. So, well, I've done you know I've I've done a lot recently. I mean, there was um, uh, the 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 um, uh i did really get back to comics um very um very quickly um and with a lot of books um after essentially after smoke ashes but after ashes 
was kickstarted. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time creating Valentine, which was my web comic, which is one of the most, one of the first really big digital only comics. It was optimized for phone screens and stuff, and and uh, people really enjoyed it. Um, it didn't get me any other gigs. We're still making it slowly. Um, we're cool. almost. Christine's finishing up episode 16, and we've got like six more to go, and then we're completely done. And we started it in 2008. But meanwhile, like she's had a baby, and you know, we've all making comics when um, can is 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 slow, especially when you're not paid for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely. Are we there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alana's still there? She seems yeah. to have dropped off. Okay. Well, well we okay, wait for so her. Okay, how, so how, uh, how, about, how about this Biden thing? <laughs> Are you Biden or Bernie? Um, <laughs> hey, well, you right now, this up? I will take either of them. Um <laughs> <laughs> I will go with either. Uh, there's, yeah, there's I'm not. I, I, you know, I, I, feel, I feel like a, I feel like a gender traitor for this, but I, <laughs> I'm not really feeling Hillary. Yeah, I, um, I'm not either. Um, I hate to say it. Uh, I actually actually have a question. You kind of brought up with the the, the Kickstarter with um, with Smoke and Ashes. Uh, you know, that was it seems like forever ago. Why did you? Um, go that route for, for producing it um, as opposed to maybe doing something digitally? And like, what did you kind of learn going through the, the Kickstarter process? Well, people don't want to... Well, I mean, I'd already been doing a digital comic. I've been doing Valentine. Um, yeah. And I'm quite aware of how much, you know, how hard it is. We essentially, for a long time, we had Valentine as free because I didn't have the time or the effort to market it. I figured I could charge money for it and then I'd have to put in a lot of effort to market it. And it was... a absolute killer just to create so i thought well rather than marketing it i'm just gonna i'm just gonna spend all my time making it and then i'll just put it out there and maybe people will read it but you know at least i'll be focusing on only the thing i like to do rather than the thing i find quite stressful which is which is selling books um and so when it came to smoke ashes when it came to ashes like smoke had already come out that came out in like 2006 from idw um when it came to ashes I really wanted a tangible object. I also knew how hard it was, especially at that time, to get reviewers to even look at anything digital. I mean, like the fact that they had to have a Comixology account and then I had to give them a code to put in. I mean, no one would look at it. Like, they were just too damn lazy. Um, And also, it wasn't on paper, so therefore it wasn't legit. Like, there was this real view, and this was only about six or seven years ago um, and I still think it carries through to you know I think it's changed now but only within the past couple of years that you know if the comic wasn't in print then it wasn't a legitimate comic and you didn't have like they didn't have to pay attention to it um, in terms of reviewers I'm not talking about readers I mean readers are always ahead of everybody else readers are ahead of publishers mm-hmm. readers are ahead of reviewers because reviewers you know oftentimes their main source of information are publishing companies. So the publishing companies are always, say, five years behind the readers. And so a lot of the reviewers who, you know, get press releases and then ask for for copies of review copies and then review them are even behind the publishers, which means they're, like, way out and back. Um, Again, this has changed over the past few years with with the Internet – um, and people taking reviews into their own hands rather than the old school of like, okay, the book has come out, then the publisher will send out a release, and then the reviewers will review it, and blah, blah, blah. Um, 
so I knew both that um, that well I also didn't have a job at that point so I knew that I couldn't pay for the art to be created by myself which I'd been doing with Valentine and why Valentine had to go on a hiatus for a couple of years because um, I lost my job and um, I knew that it would be really hard to get people interested in it if it was digital only and I think for Kickstarter, I also felt when I when I started looking at doing a Kickstarter for it, um, I really felt that people should have a tangible object. So, you know, I didn't think that people would be interested as interested in like paying to help me create the book if they didn't get something in their hands. Even if, and what we yeah. want to do is give them a digital copy and give them a nice hardback copy. So even if they only they they mostly read digital now, they still have that nice hardback copy to put on their shelf and kind of pet, you know, the show off book. You know, I think I think uh-huh. in many ways, some some readers are going to that of getting really nice cased editions or hardback editions or deluxe editions, but really everything's just on their laptop or their tablet that they actually read. Um, I still mainly read on paper because most of my reading is nonfiction and it's research, if it's prose, and I like to write all over the book and stick post-it notes in it and tag it. And yes, I know I can do this all on a computer, but um, if I'm writing at the same time, I like to have my writing notebook, whether it's my laptop notebook or my paper notebook, next to the book and look at them both at the same time. And yes, I know I can alt-tab, but just like I'm old, <laughs> old gonna old. Um, so. After all this, I needed someone to pay for the book. I needed to give them something in return, and I needed a platform to do it on. So I decided to do Kickstarter. And originally, I had an artist who was able to do the whole book, um, and then he turned out to not be the best choice for the book. Um, in that, it wasn't really a collaboration. In that, you could have a conversation with him about changing stuff, or about adjusting things. Like, he could change anything he wanted, but then I couldn't say, hey, what about this, you know? And that wasn't cool. Um, so I, I took him off the book and then replaced them, replaced him with a uh, sort of a, a really wonderful list of artists um, who I was kind of thrilled to get on board, and which have started some of the collaborations, you know, thanks to all the people coming in on Smoke Ashes. You know, now I work regularly with Carla Speed McNeil, Dan McDade and I have a project we're working on together that's still in development. Um, Matt Chater and I are going to do something sooner or later. Um, you know, all of these artists are all people that that really the connection started over ashes. So I have a lot to be in. Like, I got to work with Bill Sinkiewicz. Yay! You know, wow, <laughs> on an indie yeah. book that I self-published, winning. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's 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 what happened and. You know, creating it, editing it, doing it all myself, sending it out, it was a complete nightmare. The book gave me gray hairs. Like, just even just producing it, chasing up all of these artists. Because um, no, though none of them were doing, uh, you know, in huge sections, I think the most one artist was doing was maybe 40 pages, and some were doing as few as, like, eight pages. Um, I, it just, it was a killer. And then just making the book. And luckily, Dark Horse stepped in and said, hey, we'll publish this for you. So a lot of the pre-press, even though I was doing most of the, you know, the, the, the page layout and all of the lettering, the pre-press was done um, and the design was done at Dark Horse, which is why it looks so nice. Um, awesome. Yeah. 
folks, your first Kickstarter project, don't have it be a 250-page graphic novel. Don't do that. <laughs> well, the, the this other is thing the that information I, that our listeners come to us for, because there isn't another yeah. podcast that will tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, like the, the, for Kickstarter, start small. Like, just do one issue. And then if you overfund, yay. But, like, in that one issue, book in your shipping costs, and then add another 50% just in case. Because like, you're like, yay, I'm overfunded. I'll add more pages. And then suddenly you go up a shipping tier and your shipping triples. And like your overseas shipping costs more than your book and then you want to cry. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, the best thing to do is, especially if you're new to Kickstarter and don't, like, don't, aren't really known in comics, as I sort of wasn't, then um, don't, don't, set your goals too high. It's better to do a small thing really well than to do a big thing and fail. As I say, the, the thing I find interesting was that um, along with the, the Kickstarter and um, Valentine, is that you've kind of been almost ahead of the curve when it comes to technology and comic books. Um, you know, Kickstarter was towards the beginning, like it really wasn't used a whole lot for comics. It was just kind of the start of that. And then uh, with the with the digital comic, you know, many people use that as like the example of go to of how to use kind of that the flow of digital and some of the, some of the things you can go to. Um, you know, is that kind of the technology and how to use it? Is it something you generally you know think about when it comes to you know, uh, you know enhancing your work, or is it just something that kind of like happened? Well, I'm yeah, I'm a formalist by nature, and I'm very interested in in what makes storytelling fit a particular format, whether it be paper, uh, uh, video, digital, whatever, and just like sort of picking it down to the bones of why, why does, why, what can we do on this that we can't do anywhere else and that actually enhances the storytelling. And that last phrase, actually enhances the storytelling, is the important part because you can do pretty much anything on anything. And a lot of it sucks and a lot of it's a bad choice. <laughs> Um, so you should always be, be be respectful of of what improves the storytelling from the reader's point of view. Um, and with comics, especially with digital comics, uh, that mainly involves making sure the reader uh, retains control of time. Um, because when you start taking the control of time away from the reader, um, you start alienating the reader. And what I mean is, like, in video, like, or a movie, a two-minute scene is a two-minute scene. The director and, um, uh, directs the scene, the cinematographer shoots it, the editor edits it, edits it becomes a two-minute scene for everyone who watches that film, unless it's um, Basic Instinct and it's the Sharon Stone-like crossing scene. That scene is always <laughs> two minutes long. <laughs> you are my hero. Uh, right. <laughs> there some kids today, like on Google right now, sharing stone. Yeah. You're like, wait, um, is that a thing? We're like, okay, you guys don't understand. There was a thing when we were younger, and there was videos. And you lady were parts were still mind. really interesting when we were young, okay? Like in movies. Were, um, how many VHS tapes were ruined? Oh, totally. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, in a book, uh, a page lasts as long as you want to read it. You might be in a rush, so you skim over the page really quickly or you might take a really long time pouring over the storytelling. You might even go back to check something out that you're like, oh, wait, like, mm-hmm. was that guy the same guy who was in the last chapter? And, like, is that, like, I'm just going to check that bit of foreshadowing that I glanced over. And that is your choice. And so in a comic, we're all accustomed to the scene being 
not a two-minute scene because the, re- the the director, the the writer and, and artist don't dictate how long we read the scene. We can guide you. As the creators, we can guide you. We can box up lots of panels and slow you down. We can throw you out into space with a splash page and make it fast. Um, you know, We can do all these things to suggest a pacing, but really it's finally up to the reader how long the scene lasts. And once you start pushing the reader in a digital comic um, for the scene to be a set amount of time by adding sound effects or voiceover or or like tra- weird transition effects like halfway through the scene someone like another character slides in it's all it, that's that's why motion comics are generally made of fail because it's a very simple principle you're taking t- the, the 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 hourglass away from the reader and then the reader will hate you yeah i get that i get that games are a nice thing to look at for this cuz games do a lot of immersive added value stuff like the looping game soundtracks, like if you're, you know, in the middle of a level of something and there's like a soundtrack in the background and you wander off to like go to the bathroom and get get a, get some chips and come back, that song's still going, you know, it doesn't end. Um, and they're like, you know, rain effects. And there, there, there are a lot of looping interesting effects that games do well that, that, that digital comics could do well if we had more money and could bring on like a, a proper coder onto our team that we could do amazing stuff. And I've been saying this since, 2008. Someone needs to give me money and a coder or two, and we could make the most amazing digital comic in the world. And the right artist. I need to find the right artist to collaborate with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, it's, it's easy. It's easy to be to see what needs to be done. And a lot of digital comics are the same cake with different frosting. No one's baking a new cake, and that kind of frustrates me still, because you know there's like. This, the stuff that's really innovative today is like the same stuff the innovative people were doing in 2008, but with slightly better art. Um, you know, the the Marvel, like the all like the Marvel and DC Unlimited stuff, we were doing that in Valentine. Two chicks in the Bronx, like doing it by ourselves, one of whom was pregnant, you know, with no money. Like, and if and frankly, like if you're not doing better than we were doing in 2008 when I didn't even own a smartphone and had to picture all of it in my head, how it would work, and had no ability to actually beta-proof it and would just send it to Comixology and hope, you know, frankly, you know, pull your skirts up because, <laughs> because cause it's just the same damn cake with, with different frosting. Yeah, it's people aren't, if they're not investing in doing this right and then wondering why it's not performing better financially or artistically, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But, you know, it's hard to be first. It's, it's like the, the person who is first at doing something is generally the one who dies in a ditch with, the arrow, with an arrow in their back or starves to death. It's great to be second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you want very, to all, figure out so. all the, the, the hard lessons learned by the first person and be like, hey, I've done this thing. And everyone's like, oh, we've heard of that now. Um, but there is yeah. a thing where, like, if you, if you get if you get too crazy with comics, but part of it is also you need a really good story that really suits um, a more innovative uh, uh, storytelling technique. And and you know, there's something always that kind of falls down. It's either a boring ass story, like, well, or it's a, it's a it's an exciting story. It's a fine story, but it's a story you could do on paper. Um, or you know, there, there or there's it's just the digital digital storytelling techniques are not you know are not anything that's that's exciting anymore 
Um, it's it's well done, but it's just it's just again the stuff we were doing in in 2008 by ourselves. Um, it's a little frustrating that way. But you know, the other point is like if we if we continue with digital comics to a certain point, it's like well why don't we just animate it? Yeah. Um, you know, why I just want to have stuff being Universe? optimized. I, you know, um, I just want to have stuff being moving through the sequence of the page properly as I'm reading it. In and of itself, would be nice. That's like tough. show me the panels in the right order, and then like yeah. maybe give me a chance to hit replay. Like it's not complicated, what I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah, but that's one of the reasons why comicsology is good with that because they they cut up the books like it's actual humans who who decide the panel flow. It's not like mm. a computer or anything. So they, I, I can, I, you know, I, I've known those guys for ages, and I, I, fu- I fully will raise my hand and admit my bias, but I really do think they're the best at what they do. <laughs> it's become like almost less important with like tablets getting bigger. But you know, remember when Comicsology started out and we were doing this like cell phone? There were no iPads. <laughs> yeah, they did not exist until twenty ten, middle two thousand and nine. Um, you know, we were all doing this based on 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 like three GSs and stuff. So you said you said that they're the best they are what they do, and they're also good at cutting things, which leads me to believe that comicsology is actually Wolverine. Uh, <laughs> they're less hairy, but don't bump. And some are tall. Cumulatively, they might be. Well, yeah, <laughs> it was a thought. So I know go. that you have something coming out on in print uh, uh, tomorrow, I believe, correct? The new, actually the first trade paperback for No Mercy, is that right? Next Wednesday, the 16th. Next week. Oh, next yeah. Wednesday. Okay. Darn it. Well, That's right. I, 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 sometimes I'm barely aware of when my books come out. I, I'm like, must try. I'm so like Shinji, must try harder. Um, and about, about, selling my books, but some publishers don't even tell you when your books are coming out or when your final order cutoff is, and it's like, please tell me these things, because then, then I can help you do your job. We can all yes, make more money. we will all make more money. Um, uh, for folks who aren't familiar with the series, uh, we should just do a quick rundown. Uh, yeah, No Mercy is a John Hughes for... script directed by John Peckinpah, or by Sam Peckinpah. Nice. So, yeah, it's... it's yes. If you like watching teenagers die, it's it's a book for you. <laughs> um, I yeah I um that, that advertisement immediately got me intrigued. Uh, I one of the things that appealed to me the most is that it sort of has a built-in critique of a lot of the American rituals of voluntourism that are built into the college-bound and college-attending youth experience today because we have a busload of kids going to we're going to Princeton. We're going to an unnamed Central American country that they seem to know nothing about, um, and they're going to like build houses or something. Basically, it's their attitude. Yeah, they're, bu- they're building there. schools in Central America and in a made-up country because I didn't want to. I didn't want to get angry letters from friends of mine who are from like Nicaragua or Honduras, being like, "Come on, Alex." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and. They are, you know, they're they're incoming college freshmen. They're doing a two-week service trip before college starts. Princeton actually has a program like this, but they don't go to a Central American country. They just go to Trenton um, and build schools and build houses and do cool stuff. And, you know, it, it's actually a really wonderful program, and I do feel some slight regret, you know, <laughs> 
using this. And I and I chose Princeton because I went to Princeton, so I can at least I at least know the basic layout of the university and how it works. Though so, like so much has changed since I've been there. Um, and so the yeah the kids are going to to build schools in Central America, and they uh, face a terrible mishap on the way to the remote village that they're going to, and then things get worse from there. Um, and it's a, it's a fun book for so many reasons. Um, it veers between a kind of uh, a real sort of brutality um, in almost every issue and also this kind of absurdity and, and sense of humor. And it, 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 totally it's, it's, it's a strange book in this sort of market. Um, and again, like there's there's no I think I when I announced it on Image Expo and like back last January, um, I, I quoted from Auden and said it was you know, uh, no animals talked and there was neither floating nor flying. There's nothing supernatural. There is no sn- smoke monster. There are no zombies. Nobody gets powers. It's just the kids in the room and their own issues and they barely know each other. Like, they would, they're not a group of friends. They're just a disparate bunch of incoming freshmen from all around the U.S. Um, and so they're discovering things about each other as we discover them, and some things we don't discover for a very long time because it's not stuff that would come up in conversation. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really dealing with is, is, is not only the, the craziness of the teenage years where they're desperately reinventing themselves and they are... Um, desperately kind of figuring out what their social status is and sometimes doing that by really horribly pushing other kids down in a, in, in a emotional way, not like an actual physical way, um, to, to sort of gain status, along with the fact that they are in an incredibly hostile environment that most of them don't understand. So it's, uh, you know, some, some people out there can be like, oh, isn't that Lord of the Flies? Like, no, Lord of the Flies is a wonderful book and it's already written. Um, this is much more, um, they don't turn on each other in the way that the kids in Lord of the Flies turn on each other or like Battle Royale, love Battle Royale. Um, but they, there is, they are definitely not friends. You know, some of them develop friendships, but some of them would never have been friends if they'd met in other situations or even talked to each other in other situations. I mean, I think this is one of the most brutally realistic comics that I've read. You know, it's not—it's not an allegory. Like, it is what it, it is. And and there's you know these diverse characters who are very believable, um, and their interpersonal reactions, which are just again like feels very real. And I think that's why the brutality is some is can be so just like jarring. It's because you don't usually see that happening in that real space. Yeah, I think I think yeah. the realness sometimes gets people because. Some things are very close to home for some of the readers in terms of like they are seeing things that they that that you know that, that don't like comics embraces all things but but weirdly a, a, a realistic depiction of the way teenagers interact with each other and the casual brutality of it is not something that you see very often. Um, uh-huh. It's even it, it tends to be soft pedaled even in teen books. Um, maybe I had a particularly like yeah. crazy teenage years, but you know, I'm I'm pretty much just trying to keep this as true as I know it. And obviously, there's a shit ton of melodrama as well. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a dramatic series. There will be cliffhangers. There is melodrama. 
Well, I have to tell you, I have never wanted a fictional child to die as much as I want Charlie's brother to die. So that's that's an achievement. Um, <laughs> really want that kid to die. He is he is asking for it. Um, but also, like, I, this is sort of this might seem like a weird comparison, but I, I had a bike accident this weekend, so I came like really close to having a broken leg. Um, and you sort of become very aware. Uh, as I sit here in a soft cast and like changing bandages on my knee, like the vulnerability of the human body as it exists in real life. And when you look at like, you know, like the kinds of injuries that happen to people in this book and how they respond to it. And then in comparison to when you have these like, in Grindhouse, for example, like you have the teenagers and the devil doll story, which is such a trip, really enjoyed it. And like the kind of things that they're able, it's like completely brutal and how it's written. Um, and I felt like my, I felt like physically my response to reading it was different than it would have than it would have been had I not like just been sitting here with my leg up on a chair, like bandaged in like in a soft cast. I don't yeah, know. I mean, kind of I, th- I think once once you get to that point where you know you've seen a dead body, or um, you know you've been in the room when someone's died, or 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 something happens to you, or someone close to you. Um, it actually probably really it has to happen to you because otherwise, like, you know, comedy is tragedy that happens to other people. Um, when you know, when you realize how fast life changes, you you can't rewind that. And some re, re, some listeners will be, like, nodding right now. And others will be like, what? Not, like, I, I understand how, like, no, you don't, no, no, like, trust me, honey, and I hope you never will. But when things go, like when things go bad very fast, it can it will it can change the rest of your life in like just the smallest instant, and it's a crazy thing. And not many people like horrible tragedy happens all the time in comics. You know, we have comic book events that like just randomly destroy Mexico City because like lols look the bad guys really bad now. And that's never been my interest in doing it. Like this is a this is a book about consequences. It's not a book about events in a way. Um, and it's you know it's about people because I am about, I love to write the characters in the room. Um, you know my 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 holy grail of a of a of a of a, of a piece of fiction is 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 you know Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is like four people, two locations, well three if you count the yard. And utterly gripping, you know. Um, So when you know when things change, like I've never wanted to write the book where where the where the big bad destroys Mexico City and then off we go, and then it's just about like people in tights fighting. um, Because I'm more interested in you know the family that's looking through the kindergarten in the rubble of the city that was just destroyed. I'm interested in how those people get on with their lives. I'm interested in you know the bystanders in some ways like what do you do when you see something like this like what happens what thought process goes through your mind how how do you carry on afterwards um and that's and that's 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 what so much of no mercy is about there's an event that happens very early on in the story and the rest of the story um is about how it affects these these kids lives both immediately um and then down the road you know, some of the kids will come back to, 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 to the U.S. And you would think, oh, well, the story's over. They're back. Yay, they're back. 
Um, but that's like saying, you know, like you come back from fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan, and you're back, yay, it's over, we're done. Like, no, no, it's <laughs> just really not over at all. Um, and that's that's what I'm writing about. Well, you're you're saying that is the only reason I believe that some of them will actually survive. So that's that's the level of, of um, odds and and uh, hardship, I guess. That's we're really left facing the characters at the end of issue four. Um, yeah, I think it's a great comic, especially for people who just uh, want something that has a higher stakes and more emotional punch than just the usual stuff that they're reading. I think this is. This is, should be on everybody's list for that reason, um, but especially for people who are like bored of comics, because I don't think I've seen anything like it before. Yeah, I've, I was so. that, that that cuts both ways because sometimes like people people are just like, well, the, but but there's no kind of escapist fantasy. I mean, I love my comics as escapist fantasy. I did grow up reading Claremont's X Men, so Punk Storm was my girl. <laughs> um, and this is yeah, there's space for both. Yeah, this is this is this is more of like the kind of HBO miniseries. This is like Dead Deadwood with teenagers, mm. I guess. How how far and out do you have the? Really in, oh, sorry, go ahead. I would say how far out do you have the the series plan? I mean, you mentioned that some will make it back, so clearly you've thought a decent amount out. Well, um, I've just sent like, issue you, nine to Carla. Okay. We have five and six done. Seven and eight are written, and, and seven's drawn, being colored. Eight's being—I'm not sure if she's done inking it yet. But yeah, she's she's got nine. I planned out the next two arcs, um, although I have to do a little bit of replanning. So I think we're going to make the next trade end with nine rather than eight, because nine's a flashback issue, and I don't want to—I don't want to end. I don't want to begin an arc with a flashback issue. Um, but yeah, I've planned the next two arcs out, and there's maybe one or two after that. Probably more like two, really. I mean, it kind of is going to go on for uh, yeah. It's, it's it's going to be about thirty issues, maybe if people keep buying it. Um, and image stays behind us. And it's going to morph in weird ways. Like I don't know whether everyone's going to be cool with the entire journey or not. But we're just going to do it and then see what people think. Nobody will get power, cool. though. It's all like, you know. <laughs> we promise no nobody's talk. getting superpowers. No one's getting superpowers. Um, I definitely I'm now doing my reaction about. to that, like in the way that Grindhouse, like Grindhouse was a reaction to writing yeah. Ashes and a book called Margaret the Damned, which is sort of mainly, maybe finally in production, but it was another really like hardcore psych thriller. Um, way more hardcore than 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 ashes actually and weirder um and then i was just like fuck it i can't do this anymore i can't write a serious book and so i wrote be vixens from mars um and as is always the way when you write a book like a titty book with lots of gore just for fun everyone's like this is wonderful and that sells better than all the things you pull your hair out creating formless masterpieces or like wannabe formless masterpieces um, yeah, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, like, I'm fine. Like, I'm completely complicit. I did a second season. It was, it's really fun. Yeah. I um, but like, then I've got, like, really No radical. Mercy and two other books that are both real world, no powers. It just, like, it, it. and the two other books are historic, you know, both of which are already written and just, like, waiting for artists to get around to them. 
um, one set in 1971, one set in 19, uh, New Year's Eve, 1958. Um, Ooh. In Cuba, yes, it's my Cuban book. The nice oh, those, piece, wow, the okay. And what's the 1971 one set? I'm, I'm a sucker for, like, that time period history stuff. Oh, um, it's, 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 my, it's my sort of Terrence Malick's Badlands, you know, Zabriskie Point kind of young... Mm. Young teens, well, young, young, not teens, but young 20-somethings against the man fleeing, except the young 20-somethings in California are Russian agents, or Soviet agents, and they've just killed a defector who, who had flown over from, from Asia. Um, and they have with them a list of 300 Russian agents in the East, um, including people in the U.S. military command in Vietnam. I want and, to read that so bad. Oh, my God. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of things. I mean, there have been a lot of spy books coming out recently. I actually wrote this, like, a, a year or two ago. Um, and, you know, there's Codename Babushka, and, like, everyone's doing a spy book now, and I'm like, boo-hoo. Um, but, you know, unlike those books, my book's Star Boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, there's a ton of sex and drugs, and it's it's much more – it's very – it's another very brutal book, Um but it's doing, for me, some interesting things with the spy story in that it takes it and puts it in the wide open spaces of California. And you take these, these, these kids who have really only seen the Soviet Union and you put them in Palm Springs and imagine what a head fuck that is. Um, yeah. And they're in California. They're, it's not Berlin. It's not Vienna. It's not New York City. It's California. It's the other coast um, where we don't put spy books. And... <laughs> It's all the open spaces of California and, and San Francisco and, and, and the, the old um, oil derricks along Huntington Beach. and it, oh, It's so much fun. It's so much fun to write. And, and the fun thing about it is it can then be a series, a mini-series, series of discrete mini-series in a very Ed Brubaker kind of way. Um, <laughs> him, Jason Aaron, and, and I seem at present to be the only people. There's got to be someone else. See what, but see at present the only people writing things that are no powers, no like just like let's just make a drama about characters in a room and death. Um, I'm obviously the lesser yeah. of those, but but I just I'm trying to think like especially at, mostly at Image like who else is doing this sort of thing and for some reason I I guess it's not a thing um, which is a shame. Um, Chris Sabella's High Crimes is is oh no that sort of had powers or something. Um, I don't know that certain one. Fantasy. High Crimes, it's really good. You should read it. Chris Sabella um, and Ibrahim, oh God, who is the artist? Musafa? I'm going to get that wrong and he's going to tweet me and be angry. But yeah, it's High Crimes, H-I-G-H Crimes. It's, yeah, it's, it was a monkey um, brain book. But it's now out from Dark Horse as a paper yep. book. So if your yeah, library yeah. might have yeah. it, and you should read it because it's very good. And then you can write me and say, thank you, Alex. Um <laughs> But um, but yeah, we can do the the spy thing. Is the Cold War thing is a series of discrete mini series about different things in the Cold War, and I already have like I have like so many of them mapped out already. I had a bit of a moment. That's why I've been doing all this reading. I read thousands of pages and like first person spy fiction, nonfiction, like the accounts of people's times in the various residencies in the Cold War. Um, but the, you know, the second book is in Berlin in 1972, an eventful year for Berlin, even more so for Munich. Um, oh and yeah, it's the Bader Meinhof book. Um, the oh, oh my God, yes, yes. And and it's 
following the the Russian the the young Soviet agent and then um, the the young American CIA case officer um, and they keep kind of crossing paths, but it's uh, just developing their story over time around various events because the Bader Meinhof gang are fascinating. Like the, the yeah. if you want to read about some really interesting interpersonal re- like relationships, like that that is just that's a whole nother level. Um, and it, it, each is tied in with music as well. The the seventy one one is tied in with the, with the, like the, the the birth and rise of heavy metal in America. Um, so you'd expect to, like because that was really when there was this like high water mark of American idealism in like sixty eight, and by seventy one that had started to rot and like seep back, and there was just this filthy crust. And the hippies weren't hippies; they were just bros, and like everyone was like it, everything was just sour and awful and 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 you know um Hendrix died Joplin died um uh, fuckity boo from the doors who I don't actually really like Jim, uh, Jim, Morrison. Jim Morrison theoretically died yeah. um <laughs> you know uh, Lieutenant Cowley was tried for Milai massacre um it was just an ugly time and a particular particular time in America where we sort of really lost hope um Vietnam was just just a, a sink of lives um of all of all stripes um and so against that kind of weird pessimism and america turning against itself in a way you know we've got this uh we've got this new form of music coming up which was very rebellious um and you know you had by in 71 you, you had led zeppelin you had two stooges albums out you had two black sabbath albums out um, you had alice cooper p- putting down some of the heaviest sounds recorded um it's fun and then, then we go this is like all of my favorite music and like half of my like most fascinating like like leftist radicals i'm most fascinated by so i'm i'm absolutely the audience for this and i'm really excited to read it but Yay. i do also want to speak like nobody has powers speaking noise you probably heard about that so i'm all about it but i do also hmm. want to speak up on behalf of brian house i don't know here's the thing so as somebody who likes a lot of genre exploitation, um, co- like pop culture stuff, like B-movies and comics like that, and as a woman and a feminist and a queer person, like I spend a lot of my time watching these things, holding my breath and waiting for the shoe to drop for it to be clear that I'm not the audience for this thing. Oh, we call that the I'm like moment. never the intended audience for it. It's always for white dudes. But when I'm reading your comic, I know that at no even though like somebody's like literally about to get gutted and like there's going to be like crazy blood and like glass covered like you know dildos being shoved in the mouths of sexist assholes at no point in time is something sexist going to be done to me, right? Yeah, so, there's, there's a very actually, like it's a yeah. it's a weird gaze issue in that like you know that you know the, the like the female body isn't being gazed upon as as an object as like a predatory object. Um, at any point. I mean, there's sure, 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 there's like, you know, people are, you know, lusting after each other and women are looking hot, but it's not this one sort of direction um, thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah. But I call it the fuck you moment in books when you're like flipping through a book and you're like, wow, this is really good. Like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> and then you just yeah. throw it down. You're like, nope, done. You know, <laughs> um, I remember there was one book that, that, uh, I think even even my white dude friends, who admittedly are very liberal and queer friendly, were just like, nope, 
at page three, and I was like, this is this is like this is some sort of massive result for a book to like just just make the whole table of us in in the pub just throw it down in just frustration and just be like, nah, this is this is this is tripe. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the grinders got a what, what we were really quiet at first about the the gays the, the gays non-issue or issue or whatever in in grindhouse because i i wanted the fan i wanted the fanboys to read it i wanted the horror audience to read it i wanted the guy who's like you know wearing the green lantern shirt and who's like ooh it's a titty book you know to buy it um cuz i wanted their money i'm not <laughs> like that um and you know i thought it was worrying enough that that you know, a woman was writing it, especially not a very well-known one. Um, you know, the fact that I I have the, the the gift of being able to appear male in people's minds because of the androgynous name and and the, and the burden yeah. of assumption in comics. Um, got so many letters like he's doing great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it was definitely something that was considered at every step of the way. It was like we're going to make this really fun and really wrong, but not hateful at any point. Yes. Yeah, and that's just so unique and radical and different. Um, so that's, like, really important. And, I, you know, I, I want people to pay attention to that. Absolutely. I also want to thank you for having some of the only representations of butch women in a mainstream comic that I've encountered in, like, years. Um it's like one of my absolute pet peeves is like the absolute invisibility. Like even when people are like doing, you know, like having poor women in comics, like everybody's drawn in the feminine way. And even if they're like portrayed as butch, they'll still put them in earrings. And I'm like, I don't really think so. Um, yeah. And and like so that's just been it just been that's been great and such a consistently diverse cast throughout of it. I just I successfully want to say that I am the world's biggest Deputy Garcia uh, fangirl now. I was very happy to see her return in um, in the uh, third. I guess it was the third story cycle. Yeah, Blood, um, well, the second the second story cycle, which is Blood Lagoon. Uh, the, the third, oh, the, second one. the second story of the of the second story cycle. Yeah, Grindhouse is a little confusing for the for the listeners who doesn't who don't know about it. We did a first. Grindhouse is is structured. Um, I accidentally got my own personal anthology series at Dark Horse. Um, my first time out of the gate. Um, I'm sorry, curse my name if you will. Um, and Grindhouse is two issue stories, and there are two and and there and we did them as as like uh, eight issue miniseries. So like the first eight issues was was four disparate two issue stories, and they were different artists and completely different stories. They they there's no meta continuity. That none of them exist in the same universe as another. It's just Four stories that are two. They're each two issues long, and I think one of the reasons we were successful with that is, um, if you watch a lot of Grindhouse films, um, then you know that they get in and get out really fast. And sometimes they are kind of boring in the middle. Um, uh, they're not super fast paced. We always think of them as being so, but they're and they're but they're like eighty minutes long. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I really had fun writing two issues of B Vixens. I really didn't want to write six issues of B Vixens. And I think when people do Grindhouse elsewhere, they tend to try to write one story that's six issues long, and, and the story somewhat overstays its welcome. Um, uh-huh. You just want to rattle through it and hope the seams don't show and, 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 and have a lot of fun and splatter and grossness and, and be like, yeah, I'm done, bye. Um, 
and leave people wanting more and leave people with a really good ending, uh, which I think we pretty much did. I was really proud of most of the endings of the Grindhouse stories. And then we did a second series of four stories, which just finished um, with my space exploitation story, um, Nebulina, with, with wonderful art. Um, we did. A, we had a Manara cover, which which was uh, something that entertained us so much. And I, I actually I really love Manara. Um, it's a really gorgeous cover. Um, it's he's a great amazingly cover, easy yeah. to art direct. <laughs> like most cover artists, you're like, hey, this is what I want, and they're like, okay, right, I'll do it, and then they do it better, you know. Um, yeah, that was a, it was a perfect use of Manara. Like that's that's what he's like there for. You know what I mean? Hmm. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was a, it was it was a bit of a peeping tom gaze, but it wasn't. But you know, it, the woman was certainly aware of her own sexuality and enjoying it, as it were. Yeah. It, it wasn't being foisted upon a 16-year-old character, like with like it, it, it was. Yeah, it's like it's exactly. It was. It was used perfectly. I, I wanted to point it, point it out to people. Like, okay, see this. This is a Manara cover that makes sense. Okay, thank you. Yes, and I, and um, I really wanted to do it because people were like bagging on him so badly, and it was just like, look, this is like he's one of the great masters of comics art. He does a thing, like you don't call a plasterer to install your toilet, like. You know, you don't call Michelangelo to to put your to, to 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 like reupholster your sofa unless you want drawings all over it. He does a thing. You hire him for the thing, um, or you art direct him for the thing. And you know, I think it would have been fine, for instance, if he were doing like, oh God, I'm not even going to be able to think of a character now, like a comic book character who who it's like, I can, I can only think of DC comic book characters that actually are sexy. Are like uh, like outgoingly sexy. They're like, hey, I'm sexy uh-huh. and I'm going to do a sexy thing, rather than like yeah. you know, um, like Black Cat. He could have done Out Black Cat. That's a Marvel character. He could have done Felicia Hardy. Yeah. Like that was uh, like yeah. a really great Felicia Hardy cover. Fine, and she, she could have been sexy as all hell, and everyone would have been like, that's fine. Um, I'll think of what is Black Widow. He probably could have done a great Black Widow cover. Um, Probably about yeah, it's about the appropriate context. Like you want to have the right person doing the right thing. Yes, so. yes. Um, but yeah, no, Grindhouse. We 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 were really surprised by how well it went over from a very broad range of readers, um, from mm. what I would call the refer to as the traditional comic buying audience, um, who really dug it for the you know the trash horror aspect to a lot of readers who are like, yay, like I'm seeing myself in a comic or I'm seeing people who look like me or act like me in a comic that are not a punchline um, yeah. of something. Well, the series is very political. Like, There's so much political subtext in the prison story, Prison Ship Antares, which is probably my favorite, um, and in... My uh, favorite kiss I've written. Booty. Um, I'm sorry? Uh, Prison Ship oh, Harry says my ever. favorite kiss, my my favorite kiss I've ever written. Um, yeah, oh. and there was no pushback about that. Nobody cared. Nobody wrote angry letters. We got one angry letter, and like my editors would afford it to me because we all we let la- we laugh at our hate mail, um, uh, and occasionally offer them prizes. Um, <laughs> there was one person that got really annoyed in B Vixens, which cover your ears, spoilers if you haven't read B Vixens. Um, the sheriff dies, and the sheriff's like the male white character and like someone was really surprised that 
the, the Garcia was actually the heroine and not Sheriff Jimmy, and they wrote us a letter about, like, <gasps> our um, illegal immigrant bimbo, you know, nonsense. No and, shit. Uh, but that was the one letter we got. That was the one letter we got. Other than like, you know, occasionally we get a letter being like, "Oh, there wasn't enough gore in this," um, or like, "More tits, please." But you know, like, and I'm fine with that, like, because this is a grindhouse book. You have to deliver what the audience expects from a grindhouse book. Um, otherwise, it's false advertising. <laughs> and so we got this, you know, we got this one dor- letter from some dork, and then everybody else was cool, and, and you know, we did all sorts of stuff, which, as you say, was very quietly quite radical, and nobody cared. Yeah, I mean, in a well, bad I, way, like nobody, nobody like cared to send us like nasty letters. Oh, okay, yeah, that's what I thought. You well, I was going to say, there's like a reoccurring like gag in the comic with Sophia Garcia calling people out when they when they like make. Um, anti-immigrant comments to her and, like, pointing out that her family's been here for 400 years. Like, and so it's really ironic that this guy completely went right over his head because he's, he's obviously an idiot. But the text, like, actually reflects back on that kind of bullshit. Like, it's right there. Yeah. But, you know, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm fine with it. I... You know, I had so much fun writing those stories, and you know, I think one of the fun things was was not advertising it as a radical book, and just doing it, and just being quiet about it, and kind of like having a bit of a sense of humor about it, and but doing some quite sort of hardcore political things in the books. That, but in but you know, a lot of the grindhouse films of the early seventies were really quite radical. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Very anti-corporate, quite frankly. Like, you know, the government is the villain, like, half the time, practically. Yeah. But I, in terms of our audience, like, I lead with saying, like, there's another, like, feminist, diverse comic about women in prison, except this one is in space. Actually, the other one is in space, too, but Planet is also in space. Mm. So it's two comics. You don't have to limit yourself to just one. There um, you go. Mine's quite short. It's only two issues, but, you know. <laughs> But they were really fantastic. Um, Bride of Blood actually was the hardest to read for me. Like, oh, I just wanted to make violence. sure no one had fun reading that book because I'm so tired of rape being used in comics as um, a cheap way to do a character actualization or um, a cheap way to be like, look, this, this person's really bad. He's a rapist. And um, no. yeah. so I just I wanted to do that thing like, that they did in Thriller where, like, they just, the scene goes on for a really long time and you're like, okay, I'm no longer enjoying this. It can stop now. They can cut away any time. Uh-huh. Yeah, nope, not cutting. Still going. Still happening. Oh, it's over. Psych! No, it's not. Um, so that was just me being like, okay, you want a rape comic? Here's a rape comic. Um, and there was nothing graphic. I mean, we only showed boob, really. Um... I've always believed what you show between the panels can do a lot more than what you show on panel. Um, but it will, it's not like, it's not cool what happens at all. It's just, it's not, like, there's no way that it can be perceived as erotic. Yeah. Unless yeah. you're really fucked up. Like, if you find Bride of Blood erotic, <laughs> you know, like, I have, except for the bit 
like if you find the bit where she's in full body armor erotic like you know congr- you know congratulations cheers you are my people but like the beginning bit where she's raped no no like go talk to someone if you find that erotic cuz no it's just so brutal that was the part that I, that was the only part that was really hard hard for me to read but um but like just to have something like this available that you know embraces me as an audience is just really special to have so Oh, I loved all those those female uh, summer camp mean girls in devil dolls, and I especially the preppy one with the sunglasses and the polo shirt. Um, I was just wondering if you had any like particular inspiration for that particular cast of characters. Oh, um, girl gang films, and also um, I I. I I grew up in Philadelphia watching a lot of um like Channel 29 which at that what's now a Fox station but back back in back back a long time ago we it would show um like B movies and Z movies like on rerun and that was pretty much all it did and like the Lawrence Welk show mm-hmm. I think some hee-haw as well um and uh I watched a ton of war films I've watched so many war films and she's like basically the Lee Marvin character in every war film She's the one who with with sunglasses who's like, right, we're gonna you know, we're gonna storm the, the, the Nazi encampment, break into the castle, sneak behind enemy lines, do this thing, like, you know, come on guys. Um so there was this whole undercurrent of um of me just having fun with this book that was theoretically just, you know, a teen slasher book, just going into this whole girl gang slash um uh, uh, like war film thing, but with girls, um, and that's why she has she has this giant blunt at one point, which is like a cigar, and she has the glasses, and and it's it's yeah, it's Patton, you know. <laughs> yeah, but she's like the one who offers the, the wisdom, like we're all faking it, like to poor little Renee. Um, yeah. Um, while the other girls are like trying to make her snort baby powder and stuff to scare her. And just be jerks, um, yeah. And I just I I wanted her to like I think it's I thought it was an important thing to say, um, and I thought she was the sort of character who'd be like, come on, we actually do need you. You know, she's gonna. I mean, she's not her her patience isn't inexhaustible. If Renee hadn't gotten her shit together, I think she would have been like, okay, you're staying here. Um, because she's really practical, but she would have given Renee a chance, and Renee actually ran with that chance. So, there you go. I love Renee throwing the brick through the window and shouting about how she's great at violin. I think all of us kids who are not sports kids, like wanted to identify. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't really a sports kid. Um, I got into sports much later in college, um, and then discovered I really liked them. Um, don't take my indie card, please. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I have, and and the the snorting baby powder was thing was something that like some girls did to me at like field hockey camp um, because I, I actually went Whoa. to a new school. Yeah, yeah, that happened. That really happened. Um, and the girls in general on their mopeds were based on uh I used to live near University of New Hampshire and then they'd do a they'd always have a summer field hockey camp or some sort of field hockey training and there would be these like hot teenage girls running around like in on mopeds with their sticks like 
walk across the handlebars of the mopeds, like driving through town with like aviators and ponytails. And I was like, man, you guys should form a gang. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. So so uh, much writing is just observing things and making connections and filing little details away for later. Um, totally. Well, Agent of Booty is obviously the black exploitation like hmm. movie of the anthology, so to speak. Um, but I thought it was so cool the inclusive sort of community with all the different groups in it that come to defense near the end of the story. Um, to have everybody coming in defense of the neighborhood, and you know, there's like yeah, it's based I, on I neighborhoods would, I've yeah. known and, and lived in in New York City, where you know, I mean, it, it you know, I I I'm it may be different elsewhere. I don't have the experience, but it was it you know it was based on New York City, where a neighborhood would be you know really black, but also have a really big Dominican population, and then also some of whom were were you know would be blacker than others, um, and also be like. Or you know very orthodox, so you'd have all these groups mingling. You know, sometimes really not very. Like they wouldn't be cool with each other, but I think if it's like push came to shove, you know there would be some agreement that would go down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've I have okay. a few orthodox friends, so I just wanted to make them laugh with the orthodox defense force. <laughs> But they were like Hasidic dudes, so I was just like, and they actually yeah. do have, you know, like their own like parallel. I know, um, I know, yeah. Emergency squad. I was just like, that was just kind of amazing. Ow, shit. Sorry, I my leg is not happy. Okay, um, it's sad. Oh, uh, but yeah, but the fact that the story was primarily situated in like this African American world, where like the heroes and you know the, her love interest, uh, who was like the doctor. Like, everybody was black, and that was just the given of the world. It was really cool to have in the sort of semi-science fiction-y setting. Yeah. No, it was, that was a fun book to write. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad I got enough of it right that, that, that my friends weren't like, Alex, you really fucked this up. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the least, like, sexualized of all the stories, although, you know, everyone is attractive, and, and, and the commander does run around in her negligee for, for a, a, a rather large portion of issue two. Um, but I just, I didn't feel like, I don't know. I just didn't want, like, it, it was never that story. Like, and I figured I could, I could get away with one story without a ton of boobs in it. It was more of a kind <laughs> oh, of like wow. really gentle, fun community, super heroine story. That's a good description. Oh, I wanted to ask why, why did you choose Toreador as the rallying cry in the prison ship on Tari's story? I feel like. That was oh that was that was like this really bizarre personal callback to um, to uh, Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles, um, where uh, one of the characters goes up to a black work crew and goes you know sing sing me one of your old time work songs and the the guy looks at him and starts singing I get no kick from champagne. Um, Yes, uh, Mel Blazing Saddles is a wonderful film. Like it is it is one of the one of the most like of its era, um, one of the you know, most quietly entertaining about its descriptions of race relations, um, like in a positive way, in, in, a, in a like, you know, uh-huh. we're just going to make fun of everybody way. Um, I like Mel Brooks films. And so I wanted to have, I wanted to have the girls singing something that was, you know, absolutely not, you know, 
like they were kind of making fun of the guards who who would expect them to sing, I don't know, a rap song or something. Um, although it's in, in the, the gospel, future, so. spiritual or something, or a spiritual yeah. or whatever. Um, and they sing something that's like so, you know, so white it's it, it's blinding. Um, and Toreador is a fun, a really fun aria. I listened to it a lot while I was writing. Oh, okay. I also just thought maybe there's something in terms of like the entering the bullfighting ring and being a spectacle. To some extent, yes. That's why that's one of the reasons I I, I picked it over other. I wanted to use an opera aria there because. It would be so so ridiculously inappropriate. Like I always joke that um, uh, Kieran Gillen, who's an old friend, he he picks um, uh, his music in his in his comic books because he loves you, and I pick my music because fuck you. Um, <laughs> so the whole uh, teen girls' gun battle in 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 the second issue of, of Devil Doll um, is done to Phil Collins' Sue Studio. Yeah, which is a film that, which is a, a song that once listened to will never get out of your head, and and you might come into my home and yell at me because of that, um, because it's playing in like in Walmart when one of the girls is off buying guns. Um, it was and, very appropriately '80s, though. I kind of took it as like a period. Yeah, and it was just it was just a really like I like I like doing weird songs to things. I mean, again, I've been having so much fun with this, this Cold War stories. Um, Playlist, which is all period stuff from you know the story takes place in April 1971 and everything, everything except one song is pre April is pre April 71 or was on the radio at that time. There's one song that's theoretically actually wasn't released until October, but I, I figure um, I'm allowed one. Is that still significant historical song? accuracy? Yes. I, I get I get a bit nerdy about. I mean, I get a bit nerdy and obsessive about my research. I mean, I've, I've, my daughter's now addicted to Archie comics because Archie sent me, you know, like four of their thousand-page digests plus a whole pile of graphic novels like The um, Afterlife and Death of Archie and a bunch of other things. And, and I read all of them before writing Archie Predator. Oh, which actually goes into questions I have about Archie versus hey, Predator. <laughs> there you go. That was so uh, much fun. I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still so glad that I live in a world where I was paid to do that. Yeah. How did that come about? Like, <laughs> is that something they approached you on, or did you go to them? Because I mean, the concept's so out there. Well, th- here's, um, here's a little secret. Yeah. I am the worst at pitching. I cannot pitch work for hire to save <laughs> my life. I never. I'm not. I'm not that girl who can just be always like clustering around an editor, being like, "Hi, hi, hire me, hire me, hire me. Here's something. Here's something else. Paint in pink, and here's this, and like." Like just going out to people at conventions and stuff. I, I'm a little like shy and anxious, and I mean I'm fine when I'm on a panel because the lights in my eyes and I can't see all of you, and then I just sit there and swear and tell extremely dry jokes. Um, <laughs> but I just I can't I can't do the whole work for hire thing. There are younger people who care more. I mean I don't give a shit about most of the superhero characters. I'm sorry. Like I like reading them, but you know like. Is writing Blue Beetle the hill I want to die on? No. <laughs> writing Batman the hill I like, not even, you know, no, no. Um, and I love a well-told superhero story written by somebody else. I'd love to write Wonder Woman someday. Alas, that will probably never happen um, beyond the sensation piece I did. Um, but I just, I can't, you know, I can't do that. 
So unless somebody basically calls me up and is like, Alex, we want you to write this thing, I'm probably not going to write it. So Dark Horse called me up and said, Alex, we want you to write this thing. Actually, my, my editor was like, hey, we're doing this weird Archie Predator crossover. Would you be interested in doing it? And I'm like, they'll pay me, right? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'll do it. See, I'm so easy. Um, all you have to do is ask me. You know, like, so I'm a girl. You have to call me and ask me. Um, sometimes I think that's why like, there aren't as many female writers. Um, I mean, though it's getting better every year, is that many of us sit there and wait to be called. Um, whereas, the, whereas a lot of the male writers are like, hey, hey, you know, let me butt in on this conversation with you, oh, editor at, at, a, at a convention. Um, so the story I heard was that basically the Archie guys, having finished um, Archie Kiss, were like, what can we possibly do that would be weirder than Archie Kiss as a crossover? And some guy in the back of the, of the, of the meeting room because there's always this guy in every meeting, and sometimes it's a girl, was like, Predator! And everyone's just like, what? And then silence fell, and then someone went, yeah. And they called Dark Horse, and Dark Horse were like, yeah, sure, because Dark Horse actually publishes the, the hardback like archive editions of Archie, so there's a tie there anyway. And they done, oh. you know, I think Archie Kiss was IDW. <laughs> they kind of like shop it around and do, 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 do crossovers with all of the major indie publishers. Um, and so they just called me and were like, do you want to do this? Um, and I said yes, and I spitballed it over the phone with, with um, like, Scott Alley, Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, and my editor, Brendan Wright, um, who's now freelance. And um, we spitballed this crazy four-issue thing, and Roberto was extremely encouraging about letting me letting me do horrible things to his, his, his company's characters. Um, and then I wrote it, and you know there was a little bit of pushback here and there. But frankly, if people weren't push, if if Archie and and Fox weren't pushing back on Archie versus Predator, I wasn't doing my job. Um, so my point was to basically um, take it so far that they'd push back and be like, "Whoa, that's a bridge too far," and they push it back a little bit, and they'd feel like they'd won because they pushed it back. 10%, but not really realizing that, you know, I had already annexed their Sudetenland and was, like, moving on to Poland. Um. <laughs> can, can you give us an example of something like they were just like, no, that's too far, because the comic goes pretty far. Like, I... Very far. It was just like, like, well, I mean, like, like Fox's great crit for issue one was, like, you can't say Chanel and Versace. Like, emoji, like, HUD displays, fine. You can't say Chanel. I'm like, okay, fine. Huh. <laughs> and, and they objected to something we referred to in issue three as the Gundam suit um, because I think they looked up Gundam and realized they didn't have the rights to Gundam so that we were afraid that we, they were afraid we'd actually use the word Gundam. So we just said robot wore a suit from every so often, from, from, like, from then on, and everybody was fine. Um, and Archie, uh, oh gosh. Um, I mean, there was some, like, inter-Betty Veronica violence that they objected to. I mean, the the main note was just reassuring, reminding me that they are always friends no matter what happens. They can get really angry with each other, but they are always fundamentally friends. Um, and that actually made the whole story better because um, their kind of like cheery American like gung-ho 50s-ness, um, especially as things started going wrong, just made it all the more painful for them. Um 
and um, gosh, um, what 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 was one thing they specifically called back on? Oh, um, there was this one thing we we brought in General Keller to kind of explain the bad guy in issue two, where there's that thing where like the guy from the military comes in and says, "Look, kids, this is this is an alien that we've known about," and blah blah blah. Yes. Um, but that that scene, like this, is where I always get meta because that that scene of like the person comes in to explain the monster is obviously the explain the monster scene. So I can't possibly play that straight because it's like the most cliched device in plot history. Um, and so I had all the kids talking over General Keller, giving them important life-saving information because they're teenagers and that's what they're going to do. And Betty was like, oh, "Predator, that's such a lame name, but." And Archie's like, shut up, shut up, I'm trying to listen, but also then covering over more of General Keller's dialogue, which was just all in the back of the panel. Like, it was essentially the panel background. And then Betty said something about, my uncle was a predator. Mom always said if she, he tried to pick me up from school, she'd kill him with a claw hammer. And they decide, And Archie wrote a note back to me. It was like, you can't make jokes about child predation in Archie. I'm yeah. Like, please, it was funny. And Roberta's like, it was really funny. We can't do that. <laughs> And so we should have something joke. more innocuous. Um, but I used to have, I had all these things where Betty would just kind of go off into Betty space and be like, oh, here's a thing. And like just say something kind of really tragic or really weird um, about her family and be like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen that much blood since since, since Auntie Mabel's Yorkie was ran over by the lawnmower. Um, and uh, a lot of that got cut, but still Betty did occasionally space out. Um, and say silly things. But yeah, we had we had so much fun. Just cre- like the whole team. I mean, Fernando, Rick, um, uh, Rich Kozlowski, the the anchor, Jason Millet on colors, um, me, Brendan, the whole Archie team. I mean, we just like that book was as much fun to make as you think it was. And I think some of the glee, like you feel it as you read the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Did, so the the thing that one of the things that really um, stood out to me about the the series uh, was, I mean, it, it was clearly like a like a really um, there was like a lot of homages to the actual Predator series and a lot of like the things that they kind of done the really subtle like, view from the Predator. Um, like, how well did you know that going into it? Because that was like one of the first things that that kind of stuck out to me was one, it had like the humor of Archie comics and, and, you know, mixed with it. But the other was, you know, there was just that like perfect spacing that, uh, that kind of like hit in that, you know, the viewpoint of him and just a lot of like the, the story, um, you know, quirks that they kind of brought throughout that series over and over and over again. Uh, well, I mean, again, as you know, I'm a fiend for research. So I went and rewatched all the predator films like three times before I wrote, wrote the series. Um, and, you know, again, when when you're writing a book, like, when you're writing a book in a particular genre or with particular characters, you have a debt of of truth in advertising to your readers that you will understand those characters and give the readers of each franchise what they want. So in Grindhouse, like, I had a debt of, 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 of truth in advertising to my my horror readers in that they were expecting a lot of titty and a lot of gore. And if the book didn't provide those, they would be, you know, they would be understandably not interested in more issues of the book. 
And in Archie Predator, I added, uh, you know, a, a debt to the Archie fans to treat their characters correctly and and make and provide an entertaining Archie story um, that was heartfelt and sweet and 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 showed what every you know what what people like best about those characters. But I also had an equally important debt to the Predator fans, you know, my horror fan base, who I love, um, to give them the gore and the shocks and the surprises that they were expecting. Um, and I think I'm, I'm one thing I'm really pleased about was the ending, which some felt a little bizarre. Um, I don't care. Um, <laughs> It was fun. It was bizarre, I need your hate mail to sugar way. my cereal. Um, <laughs> actually, there was no hate mail. What am I saying? Um, uh, but you know, we wanted to have something because you know, the, the thing about ending Archie versus Predator are there are three ways. There, there are three ways to end it. Like Archie wins, the Predator wins, or nobody wins. Or like you know, or like they both, or you know, like you know, Team A, Team B, or Duchess of Malfi, basically. Um, <laughs> I just, you just, yeah, throwing in Duchess of Malfi references into, into the Archie vs. Predator is definitely yeah. my favorite, inappropriate, but amazing cultural reference. There you the go. Check up the intervention for the win. Yeah, um, definitely. And so we we very deliberately chose a fourth way um, that also bodes interestingly for, for a concept I call super continuity, which is that all stories are in continuity with all other stories. So that the Archie versus Predator is just actually something that happened in between a couple of Archie issues. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be writing Mark Wade about 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 his new Archie and and uh, you know being around the cutlery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was there anything like particularly about the? that kind of series event you really, really enjoyed? I mean, it, it did feel reading it that you, everyone was having fun doing it. Like it just yeah. exuded like that entertainment and we're having a good time. And it just, you know, it didn't feel like work. There's not like, so much of that in comics sense. anymore. It's really weird. Like I remember, I, right. I, I feel, I feel like I've read so many comics growing up where everybody was just clearly having a blast and doing whatever they damn well felt like. And if it didn't really make sense, who cares? We're having fun. Oh, look, a dragon, you know, kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. Now that the the cinema the film side is so important for you know specifically the main the, the DC Marvel comics, you know other than little things like Squirrel Girl, um, I you know I, there's there's not a lot that's like that's just fun. I mean I think that's what kind of um, attracted people to to Hawkeye originally was the the, the, the Matt Fraction Hawkeye um, and David Ogic Hawkeye. Um, was the the first few issues were just so much fun, and then it got a bit mopey. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was just like, wow, this is what. I mean, and, and I mean, I read, I write the anti-fun comics, so I can't really, I can't really be like, nobody is fun anymore in comics. Um, but Grindhouse was fun, and Archie Predator were fun. We just sometimes just need more fun. Well done, fun. Um, but oh, what do we like best? Um, I think I think issue three was a particular highlight for me. Um, it was fun working with Dilton because he gets, you know, no one, no one had really brought up. I mean, although like Dilton has built an impressive number of sex bots over the years. I mean, Dilton has built like I, I keep pushing Archie and, and Dark Horse to do like a, a strange Archie tales 
anthology, oh, which is like awesome. all the really nuts, like like the Archie story where Betty sold her soul to the devil to get Archie to kiss her. You know, like those Archie stories. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, the Archie story where like Betty, like Veronica has Archie on a leash on the cover, and like and she he's like down like a dog. I mean, it's just there's so so much wrong. I, I'll send you a JPEG of it. It's a thing of beauty. Um, <laughs> Please do. Oh my God. You know, yep. George Ilson, the way he was written, I don't, I don't know Archie from Adam, and the way you positioned him in the story, he was always in shadow. Or I guess the artist was, and I was expecting him to like turn out to have made a deal with Predator or something. Um, no, but he was, he's always, he, in, but yeah. we, we, we did that deliberately to kind of leave that open. Yeah. But the reason he was always in shadow and excluded from the group is he's their friend, but. He's the one who's like never in the Archie canon. You know, Archie's always about, you know, about dating. Um, and even Jughead, who is theoretically the non-datey one, has this girl Ethel, Ethel, who's like chasing after him, even though he's not interested. Um, so even Jughead has someone who's chasing him, but but um, Dilton doesn't have anyone other than the sex bots. Um, and he's never been presented as somebody who's in the dating game or trying to date anyone. He's just the kid with his like inventions that 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 create plot devices. Um, and I was like, I was like, oh poor Dilton. Like you know that 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 kid in real life would be shooting up a school. Um, uh huh. <laughs> That's the Archie series that I. Intel forum like just talking about Bitcoin. It's a Archie series that I've been joking about is like they've got the the you know afterlife uh, yeah the afterlife with it and I kind of was like no I want to see like the really fucked up after school special version um, <laughs> with that sort of thing just like just go completely off the deep end with adult situations and um, like real school. The internet, the internet has school. your back on that. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, oh, don't yeah. worry. Every, like you can like both both, like both both pictorially and in text form. Yeah. Like don't worry. If you want that, it is there. <laughs> they don't need to publish it because there's a legion of fans. I, I kind of who are slashing it up a storm. <laughs> yeah, we're like, I don't know about those corners of the internet, Alex. We're scared. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. You just trust me. Research. <laughs> yeah, so it's more like one of those late night. I wonder if. Oh yeah, of course there is. Yeah. It exists. The answer is yes, it exists. Of course it exists. Um, I mean, what, the one thing we are proud of is sneaking, sneaking the, our, our little Frank Castle reference into the final issue. We actually have <laughs> Punisher in there because to, as a homage to Archie Punisher. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Which is a very. I remember that. Comic. It is. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, in Archie Punisher, the only thing that died was Frank Castle's self-esteem. <laughs> Which needed to die. Oh my God, I have such Frank Castle problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm all. Oh, I know. I and yeah, I know. Um, I haven't been reading. I, I occasionally pick up Punisher because I, I, I enjoy war stories. Um, but yeah, I haven't read Pun- I haven't read Punisher recently. He's he's a he's an interesting character. He's like the embodiment of Reaganite, like American comics. I guess I, I yeah. can't quite 
I mean, I, I say this as somebody who read Daredevil stuff from the 80s, so I feel super critical to say this, but, like, he's that much more, like, that much oh, more. Yeah. Oh, I, it's lovely to hear, actually. Like, what comics were, did you, did you, you know, did you, got you into comics growing up, and how did you get into comics growing up? Oh, just, um, like, mostly uh, Claremont's X-Men off the spinner racks and drugstores. Um, and then I took a big hiatus from comics. Oh, and really horrible DC fantasy comics area in Lord of Atlantis. Oh, my God, that was so bad. Um, but oh. I loved it. Um, it was short-lived for, for reasons which become obvious if you ever read it. Um, you know, it was like a, a, a warlord of Mars. Back, it was a warlord of Mars backup. And, and not the, like, John Carter warlord of Mars, the sort of the warlord of Mars who had, like, a chrome banana hammock and a, a goatee. Um, huh. No, you don't worry. You'd like just move, move along swiftly. No, no good comments <laughs> to be found here. Um, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll Google it and then you'll be like, oh, um, but you'll like Chrome banana hammock. Like that's when you'll know. Um, I want to say it was Mike Grell. I'm not sure. I can't oh, remember. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, anyhow, so bad fantasy comics, D and D, and and lots of X Men, um, lots of X Men, and then gave up comics because like, you know, sex and drugs and growing up and stuff, and then I was living in London and um, uh, someone in like one of my ex husband's friends was moving out of his barracks and was like, oh you like you like comics, don't you? And just gave me this massive stack of like 2000 AD and like Vertigo back when Vertigo was amazing. So like 20 years ago, oh. Vertigo. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, you know, like Preacher and, and the original Lucifer miniseries and Sandman and stuff. Um, like those were the days, like the Karen Berger years, basically. Yes. Um, yeah. And I read them all and then I misplaced that ex-husband um, and also my left my job around the same time, and I'd always written nonfiction for work, and then was like, fuck it, I'm just going to write fiction. I mean, I was writing investment banking research, which, 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 which most people would qualify as, uh, most people who don't work at an investment bank would qualify as fiction, and in many times it was, um, but, but we were, it was theoretically nonfiction. It was supposed to be factual Um, and yeah, those were those were the comics I read. Um, in terms of oh gosh, in terms of comics that have really influenced me, um, I hate that question because that's like a what's your favorite song question. Like what time of day is it? How do I feel? What's the weather like? Right, right. How do all these things come together? Um, golly, I'm not going to be able to answer that. That's okay. Don't worry about it. No, it's just interesting to hear how people. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to hear people how people found their way into comics, you know, and kind of impact they've had on their lives. Yeah. That's really interesting to have that reemerge as an adult and then really use that to pivot into your writing. I, I actually have been thinking a lot because you have these personal essays at the back of No Mercy. Like, you're definitely a writer who makes you think about the connections between your life experience and the work that you make because it's in it's in the the framing devices of the stories. Yeah, I've had a lot of I've 
lived a lot of places and I've had a lot of interesting experience and done a lot of stupid things um, and I'm still alive, how no one has any idea. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think anyway is, 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 is effective. Like you can, I know people who have only lived in one town their entire life and, and write amazing imaginative stories. And here I am having lived all around the world and done all these crazy things, and I write things that don't have any talking animals or superpowers in them. <laughs> I like noir, what can I say? Yeah, well, I mean, real life has enough stuff in it, I and mean, it's actually scarier than anything fantastic could be. So. Yeah, I find that too. I find every time I write something fictional, um, then real life comes along and is like, "Hey, actually, have you seen this? This is even more nuts." Um, and and nothing is nothing is as weird or unexpected or tragic as real life. Do you, I'm sorry. So, uh, are you? Is the is Grindhouse is over and done and not going to have another season, or might it get resurrected in the future? I'm not sure what we're going to do with it. I need a break from it. I've got a lot of um, other things on my plate right now that I have to just finish. I mean, surprisingly, a monthly comic is actually quite a difficult thing to handle. Um, is and, it now? And, <laughs> <laughs> somehow I went in blindly optimistic. But, yeah, a monthly image comic is tough, um, uh, even though we're, we're sort of four months and a four issues and a break, then four issues and a break and blah, blah, blah. Um and I'm soon going to add to that with another couple of miniseries, and it's all just, although they're written, I, I, I'm, I think I mentioned on the, on the image panel, I'm really weird. I go out and I just write things, and then I find a publisher for them. So I don't really pitch. Um, I'm sort of starting to do that now. I have an agent, thank God. Um, but most of the time, I'll get really interested in something, and I'll go off and I'll write an issue or two, and then I'll pitch it once I've written a couple of issues, and I'll know how long it's going to be. Um, the um grindhouse like I just need a break from it. Um it was a wonderful part of the last three years of my life and I feel if I wrote more stories now they wouldn't be as good as the stories I've already written. Um I'm thinking about talking to Dark Horse about opening it up to um something that I sort of help edit or oversee and occasionally do a story in and we invite other writers to play because two issues is just a really nice length. If you can tell a, a good, complex, exciting story, but it's still not a massive investment of time. Um, so I've, you know, as I say, my 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 normal my my editor at Dark Horse, who who was a very strong supporter of and pretty much gave me my career in comics, um, has left to go freelance. So we'll have to see how things happen with my new editor, who I'm going to talk to next week. I think. Well, you should tell know. your new editor that you should totally be the editor of an anthology series of grindhouse stuff by, like, especially by, like, women and, like, people who don't usually have the space to write about that kind of thing, because that would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'd love for there to be more thing. places for people who aren't norm- aren't already in the comic space to come in and play, you know, and, and by already in the comic space, I mean publishing it like Dark Horse, Image, DC, Marvel, etc. I mean, obviously there are a ton of people already in the comic space that are not in the little the little tiny comic space I play in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be lovely to, to be able to, like, have writers and artists who are interested 
you know, have somewhere they could they could just do a two issue story in. Because I think a, a big thing is, is is the little the little circle gets quite afraid of committing to things by people who are new um, or new to them, even if they've had like a, a very significant web comics or or a small publisher or or self published um, background. Um, it takes a lot to get over that wall into where someone will give you an advance for things. Um, and it would be nice to have a little trial place where people could come in and be like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. I mean, I think that that's absolutely true, and that's one of the reasons why we don't get to have more diverse creators, like even though there's all this talent that's making very visible and beloved work. But I see publishers like Boom seems to be, you know, hiring artists like straight out of webcomics and, you know, even... Yeah, I mean, the only issue is that, like... Allegedly, and I don't know this, but allegedly, Boom's um, pay rates and contracts are terrible, um, and that's why lumber, half of Lumberjanes is gone, for example. And you know, and they're, they're hiring people straight out of web comics, but they're getting like twenty-five bucks a page, fifty bucks a page. So it becomes wow. almost—it's not quite exposure, but you know. Um, and they take a lot of the, the back-end rights as well, allegedly. That's what I've heard. So, like, the boom thing is a really mixed thing for me. Like, I'm kind of hoping that all of this is wrong and that, like, the things I've heard from people, admittedly, who published at boom um, were just, like, disgruntled or they just had particularly bad deals and the deal is actually really nice and fluffy. But, um, you know, I've just, like, I don't take those deals. I don't, like, I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather kickstart. I'd rather, like, I'd rather just photocopy the shit. I'd rather draw it myself and photocopy it on my, like, home computer than I would, like, just take these really exploitative deals because it's just, but you don't know. Like, you know, your first deal in the business is always a bad deal. So I guess it's this calculated risk of, like, do you take, do you take a really bad deal, a really exploitative deal, to, to if you want to hop from web comics into into the fun fun world of monthly sequential comics, um, you know, do you take the, essentially the four exposure deal so you can have a known printer's a known publisher's imprint on a mini series of yours, um, just so you can hopefully get a mini series somewhere else? You know, yeah. Mo- you're going to sign at least two two bad deals in comics. They're probably going to be your first two. You know. Odds are you you know why not do it? Like I'm now in a position of slightly more ease in in the industry. Still not great ease. I mean it's still just a, a just a tremendous effort to get get things out. Um, but so I can say no to the the, the 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 more predatory deals. But if it were my first deal, I mean you know I signed a Tokyo Pop deal. I can't I can't throw shade. <laughs> I signed it twice. Yeah. Yeah, so many of the problems in the industry like could actually be I think resolved if they had a better payment structure for the people who are working in it. Like well, I think if people just talk to each other, like I think I think we're all afraid of talking to each other that we like blackballed out of the industry, like, the, like as if the industry is a monolith. Um and as if anyone can blackball anyone. Um if they can't blackball me, they can't blackball anyone, trust me. Um, but if we talk to each other and 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 be like, hey, this is where I'm getting paid at this company. This is why I'm getting paid at that company. We can realize people can start realizing, you know, 
what the what the disparity in deals are for particular experience levels and what they should expect and what they should refuse um you know they should know they should know when they're being taken advantage of because again sometimes you say yes to a deal where you know you're being taken advantage of because you have a greater plan that's fine i've done it you know it helped me um but you should but the key thing is you know you're being taken advantage of or you know you're being it's an informed paid. choice and it, and it comes down to this labor versus capital thing, and capital says, oh, we don't talk about money, you shouldn't talk about money. Well, that's because capital controls money. And if labor talks about money, you know, capital will have to be fair about its pay. Uh, my background is in labor organizing, so this is so, all very, yeah, I'm, like Yeah, yeah, so I'm, just like I'm my talking thing. to them. Yeah, like yeah. having people talk about what they're making is like one of the main that, like if, yeah, like if any comics creators are listening to this, I think one of the main things that management doesn't want you to do because it's how they exert power and how they get you to realize, like, to not recognize, like, oh, like, women are getting consistently underpaid for no particular reason, or they are, but this one woman... Or this publisher publishes, like, you know, this publisher her, pays so. rates that are literally a third of everybody else's, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 it's so important. If there could be, like, more of a safe space for people to come and have that conversation with each other, you know? Yes, definitely. I, I think that would go far. And you don't even Thank need to talk so about much. like you know you don't even need to talk talk about the the, the the details of your deal though that always helps because um, like the, you know there's so many deals where it's like you don't get an advance and then they want to take fifty percent of your of of your of your film rights and it's like no like like how much of no don't you understand like that's just not a deal that's like that's just you being a predatory piece of giant bullshit um, like if you're not getting paid in advance. And they want you to give up a ton of your IP. Like, go to Kickstarter. Like, seriously, it's better to go to Kickstarter and just own it. Because I guarantee if you make something really nice on Kickstarter, someone will email you and be like, hey, I'll publish that. And you'll be, and you'll be like, Dan, darn tooting, you'll publish it, but you're not getting any film rights. And I'll go, oh, but can we? And then you'll go, no. And they'll go, okay, we'll publish it anyway. Because when you have the finished object, you have the power. So, like, if you make the object yourself, like you have so much more power, and that's one of the reasons I just write stuff because I I don't want like some publisher to come in and be like, well, what if we didn't do the Cold War? What if we did like I don't know the Korean War? I'd be like, fuck off! I don't want to write about the Cold War. Um, <laughs> so if you if you write a whole bunch of the, of the book, you know, yeah, sure, it might knock out a couple of publishers who are like, well, we really want to be involved early on, um, but then. If if you don't find a place for it, you know you've done a ton of work, and you can you can find an artist, and you can hopefully kickstart like the first chapter of it or the first issue or something. You know, the more you do as a creator by yourself, the more power you have. Um, if you're just wandering around with like a five-page pitch and, and a couple of pages of preview art, you know you don't have a lot. Just do well, it. I, I just like it go do service. things. I thought it was a great service when you said it at special edition. I was just looking at my tweets from the day, like that, you know, Dark Horse has good creator contracts and I was like, Yep, good to know. Like these are just get people talking about that so they can yeah. know where to go. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm incredibly excited about your new non fiction well, like historical fiction series that are coming out in the near future. Did you say anything about when those might be, roughly? Like how many uh, my artist artist is starting in October, so we'll probably be announcing them early next year. Um, cool. I'm not sure exactly when, um, so that's all I can say right now. 
but all five issues are written. I just I just need to do a little bit of gentle rewriting, and then we're uh, we're good. Fantastic. Um, Brett, do you want to do the thing again that we do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, of course, like to um, give individuals a uh, the opportunity to plug whatever they would like. So um, here's your platform to let folks who are listening know, um, you know, where they can find you online, you know, what books they should be looking for or not you know, that we haven't been discussing over the last hour and a half, um, but that sort of stuff so they can connect with you afterwards. Okay, well, I'm pretty much everywhere online as Alex DeCampi, A-L-E-X-D-E-C-A-M-P-I. Um, I'd be greatly obliged if you would buy uh, the first No Mercy trade from Image, which comes out on uh, September 16th and costs you a mere 10 of your Earth dollars, well, 9.99 actually, um, and has a whole bunch of uh, extra content in the back. Um, if you... Ooh want to check out Valentine, it's available on Comixology. Just look up Valentine or my name. Um, and, yeah, and there are three Grindhouse trades on Comixology and, and the fourth one coming fairly soon. So if you like your, your, your trash-flavored trash, please get it. That's all. Awesome. I appreciate you coming on. Fantastic. It's been uh, fantastic having you. I've had a um, lovely time. So appreciate it. Thank you so much again for joining us. Okay. Take care. Yep. Bye. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Uh, wow. That was uh, a lot and kind of awesome. It was very interesting listening to what she had to say. Um, so, yeah. She's like uh, super I, real all the time. Yes. You know? Yes, yes, yes. Very honest and uh, open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, for everyone, thank you for listening on this uh, very extended episode. Uh, you can, of course, catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Uh, if you want to go back and re-listen to the episode, it'll be up on SoundCloud tomorrow. It'll be up on iTunes probably later of this evening, maybe early morning, as well as Stitcher. Both of those are pretty automatic. Uh, and, of course, it'll be right here on Blog Talk Radio as well if you want to listen to it here, but you can take it and download it and listen to it any way you want uh, as soon as we wrap up. Uh, of course, you can find us at graphicpolicy.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. All at Graphic Policy. We keep it very consistent. So thanks for listening. Uh, until next time, I'm Brett. And I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky. Thanks.